Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine Radio Show. The show with the host whose theme song should be, I'm a traveling man and I will smoke where I can. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine Radio Show, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. Yes, I am your host, Brian Levine, and I am back in the saddle again, (laughs) sitting here. Uh, Anyway, on tonight's show on Pipe Parts, we will be discussing my trip and a little bit about both of the trips, both pipe smoking related and non-pipe smoking related. Uh, My guest tonight is uh, Jeff Grasick, and this is the second part uh, or the second of the full episodes of Jeff answering questions and this time he gets to take on questions from Rich Esserman so it's a lot of fun Uh, music mailbag and a rave all that coming up on this week's episode of the pipes magazine radio show and uh, yes I am back and uh, let me let me explain something to you that is a little bit different than what I've ever done in the past all right I've gone overseas, I've gone over to Europe before, and the, and the, the hardest part for me is coming back, because that's a long travel day. We figured it out. We were up 21 hours and you know, in transit the whole time. Uh, you know, and then every time I've gone to Europe, the next couple of days when you're back home, I kind of feel a little off. Well, more off than normal for me. Um, and yeah, you just get those little moments of, ooh, the, the earth moved and I didn't. I held still. Uh, this time, combine that with the motion of the ship, because when you come back off of a cruise, you still feel the motion of the ship. So anyway, suffice it to say, um, I got home yesterday, and all we did was got the stuff in the house and you know, did a few things and then off to bed. And then by 6 a.m. this morning, I just couldn't stay in bed anymore. So here we are. Um, don't know what's going to come out of this show, but anyway. Um, and I do want to backtrack a minute because uh, I failed to mention the passing of Bruce Weaver. And then just recently, uh, both a close friend to me and Jeff, uh, Mitch Michelson, a noted collector from San Antonio and someone who I was proud to call my friend, uh, suddenly passed away. So uh, with getting the, you know, with both of those guys in our minds, let's uh, spend this next hour thinking about them and enjoying our pipes and talking about pipes and pipe tobacco and, you know, enjoying life. So there you go. This week's show dedicated to uh, Bruce Weaver and Mitch Michelson. And with that, I will say fire up your bowls. Everybody sit back, relax. And here we go. There's nothing quite like hunting at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. And all right, so let me start off with this. Uh, the time in London, it was uh, in the city of London itself, it was a little difficult for me to find a pub that had some chairs on the outside where I could sit and smoke, but we did find a few places. Uh, you can, again, in all of Europe, they are sensible. 
uh, and this goes to the you know, the last two trips. So Amsterdam, Denmark, Norway, England, they're sensible. If you smoke, you can sit there and smoke. Yeah, it, on an outdoor outdoor chair. Some of the places put heaters out. We ran into one place in Norway on one of our stops that had heated bases to the tables and provided blankets for everybody. So you could sit outside, smoke. If you smoked a pipe, it didn't matter. Smoked a cigarette, didn't matter. Smoked a cigar, didn't matter. You, you were all smokers. So, again, plenty of places to uh, sit and smoke and enjoy a drink. Uh, you might be a little cold. And in London, they seem a little fewer and farther between than in other cities that I've been to. Uh, the trip started off with a couple of days in London. The highlights of that were uh, going to see Freddie Mercury's house, going to see uh, taking a tour of Buckingham Palace, and then uh, spending a couple hours touring through Westminster Abbey, where a lot of the uh, English kings and queens are buried, and uh, including Charles Dickens. Uh, so if you get a chance and if you get to London, do that. Buckingham Palace is only open during the summertime. And again, it's really cool. You get to walk through the staterooms and then you get to go and they had a little lunch thing set up and you can sit and have lunch on the back garden of Buckingham Palace. All right. For the cruise uh, in particular. So let me tell you the uh, let me tell you the highlights. Uh, Disney's cabins. This was the Disney Magic ship, which is the first ship they had. So it's almost 21 years old now. Uh, Disney's cabins are by far the best cruise ship cabin I've ever been in. There is plenty of storage, plenty of room, plenty of space. Uh, two separate kind of bathroom areas. One is a uh, one is a room with the toilet and a vanity and sink, and the other one is a Small room with a bathtub and shower and another vanity. So again, plenty of room, plenty of storage space, really comfortable beds. Can't say enough about how good those rooms are. And of course, they're designed for a family of four, which is the two of us. We had plenty of room. Uh, the entertainment, if you like Disney style, Broadway style entertainment, it's the best I've seen at sea. Uh, if you're into just really good shows with really good performers and technically done really well and the sound is great, the lighting is great, these are the best production shows I've seen on the ocean. Uh, if you don't like Disney stuff and animated stories and fairy tales like that, you're going to hate them. Uh, that's all there is to it. <laughs> the food and the service was impeccable. And yes, you can have three desserts if you want. If you want to see more pictures and stuff like that, I'll be posting stuff through the next couple of weeks on my Instagram and my personal Facebook page. Uh, pipe smoking related, there's where the drawback comes in. <laughs> um, the only ashtrays they had out were cigarette butt stands. So uh, not really conducive to dumping out a pipe or dumping out or ashing a cigar. And there was only one full-time smoking area. It was up on deck nine on the front side of the ship. And it was cold and windy sometimes because it's cold and windy and rainy in the North Sea. And it was cold and windy and rainy in the North Sea. And in fact, we bought a couple of uh, sweaters and sweatshirts in Norway because we were cold. Because <laughs> uh, we underpacked. Um From 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., there was another smoking area on the fourth deck. Outside, there was a couple of areas where you could sit and smoke. 
And it was kind of comfortable as long as it wasn't cold and windy and rainy. And again, this ship was built for the Caribbean, and the North Sea is not the Caribbean. The North Sea is cold and windy and rainy. Uh, and again, the ashtrays were just your standard cigarette butt cans, per se, so no place for my pipe. Um, overall, again, the entertainment was great, the service was great, the food was great, the cabin was great, uh, the smoking area was <laughs> leaves something to be desired, so if you're looking at doing a cruise and sitting down with your pipe and enjoying it a couple times during the day is important to you, Disney may not be the ship for you. But if you're looking for a family thing and at the end of the night you duck away for a half hour or whatever, it'll work. Um, on the stops, uh, of course, Copenhagen I know real well. So my wife and I got a chance to go to one of the pubs that I know of in Copenhagen that has an indoor smoking area where I had a coffee and a gammeldansk because it was early in the morning. And then uh, Norway, which I'd never been to before. Uh, again, you know, just sensible smoking restrictions and we did get a chance to stop in, uh, two of the stops and just sit at little sidewalk cafes and I could smoke my pipe. Uh, and they had heaters, including those heated bases. Uh, and if, uh, and, and the Norwegian fjords are absolutely amazing and beautiful and some of the, and even on the cruise in and out of the harbors you, or in and out of the ports, you get to see just some beautiful landscapes. Uh, just amazing. I did bring my binoculars in hopes that I would see a moose in the wild. I did not see a moose, so I'm a little upset. So we're going to have to go back to Norway just so I can see a wild moose. Or I can go to Canada and see them walking around all over the place. But we had some great meals while we were in, while we were off the ship. And yeah, I'm, I'm a little overfed right now, so. Anyway, there you go. Um, and then we just came back, and again, I'm dealing with uh, jet lag and the motion of the ship and all that fun stuff and uh, doing laundry. All right, uh, that's enough of that. We'll get Jeff going here in a moment, so stay with us. We'll be back. This is Internet Radio. Being at the forefront of craft tobacco production for over 20 years, we've been involved in some rather interesting projects at Cornell. From the Cellar Series to the Small Batch Project, we're extremely proud of how far we've come. So moving forward, we wanted to take it back to basics, and that's what the Burley Flake Series is all about. Burley is an underrated varietal, but there is a ton of nuance there. Using various condimental tobaccos to accentuate different aspects of the air-cured leaf, each blend in this series is intended to showcase different individual subtleties inherent to Burley. It's a simple concept one that I think really speaks to the essence of what we do at CND as a crew of folks who just love tobacco. It's also really good. Cornell and Deal's Burley Flakes series, wherever fine tobaccos are sold. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show and joining us again for a jumbo-sized Ask the Pipe Maker uh, edition of the Pipes Magazine radio show is Jeff Grasick of J. Allen Pipes. Jeff, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. You you are either uh, you are either a very kind-hearted and humble and uh, and uh, empathetic soul, or you're belligerent because you keep coming back. <laughs> Did I pay you to say that? I no no, but your your wife said I dare you to me, so I did. <laughs> oh, okay, that's why I'm back. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she she said she said keep him busy. He's making too mm -hmm. much dust. Exactly. 
All right, for Ask the Pipe Maker, uh, previously we had Rick Newcomb. Well, we're going a little deeper into uh, Rich Esserman, who's only been around pipes for, I don't know, 70 years now, and he's only right. in his early 60s. Um, <laughs> but famously known for his huge pipes that he likes. Uh, here's, a, here's a handful of questions from Rich. And we'll start off with this one. Okay. How long do you age your briar? Ah. So once you buy it, you get it in, I'm imagining that you kind of inspect it, then what do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, um, what I do, what as soon as I open a, a, a box of briar, the first thing I do, yeah, like you said, is inspect it. Um, and part of that inspection process is actually taking it to my um, my rough sanding disc, which is a 36-grit uh, grinding disc. And I will clean off the sides of the briar. Um, usually, uh, when you when you boil the briar, or when you, back a little further, yeah. when you cut the briar, um, it reveals the interior of it, which is uh, pink or, or white. Um, and then it's boiled. And when it's boiled, it releases all the tannins. Well, those tannins, as they come out, they get onto the sides of the briar, right? Okay. And that causes it to darken. So the exterior of it will darken. It's like, uh, because it's being boiled in the tannins and then they change the water and get more tannins out and then change the water again and get more tannins out. But still there's a layer of it on the exterior of the briar. And most briar cutters will then take it uh, out of the, the um, boiler and put it um, in their aging room afterwards to, uh, to dry out and cure. Um, but then they don't clean the sides of it before they send it to you. Well, what I do is clean the sides of it as soon as it comes in. It removes that dark um, layer on the uh, outside and reveals the hopefully white um, uh, <laughs> interior. We talked about this on a previous episode, yeah. um, but uh, that's generally a good sign of, of uh, Briar is that it has like a whitish or, you know, beige or off-white um, color to it. Um, that means that the tannins have mostly uh, or almost completely been removed. Um, so I look for that to make sure the color is where I want it to be. And that tells me how well it has been cured. And then the other thing I look for is the quality of the grain. Um, and then what I do, uh, is a, a further step is I mark each block of briar by the, um, like a code that I have here for the origin, um, uh, the cutter that I got it from and the date that I received it. And that just helps me keep track of, uh, where it is. So if I, you know, happen to make a pipe that is, um, that doesn't smoke well, um, or let, that a customer reports doesn't smoke well, or has a ton of flaws in it. That way I know it came from this cutter at this time. And if I observe the same characteristic from other blocks from the same batch, I know that there's an issue with the batch to go to the briar cutter and have a conversation. And then possibly shop somewhere else. Yeah, possibly shop somewhere else. And it could be, you know, maybe that the briar cutter uh, would say, oh, my gosh, yeah, I remember when I sent those to you. Uh, I've had some other complaints from that batch, so let me replace them for you. Um, so uh, after I do the cleaning and marking um, of the briar, then what I do is I put it in a wire mesh um, basket, and it goes in my briar stacks, and it will stay there for a minimum of six months, usually a year. Sometimes I get a little antsy if there's a block I really want to work with and I'll pull it out. <laughs> and then, um, but basically does there, the question is, does it, it, what it's getting at, how long do you age your briar? What he's asking, 
um, is how it is about curing. Um, and there's a belief that curing briar, like aging it, kind of like wine um, or tobacco, that it will cause the briar to improve over time. And um, I am not fully convinced that aging briar before you work with it makes that much of a difference in terms of its smoking qualities. And there will be those who will argue with me from their experience, and that's fine. My experience has been different. Um, so a a minimum of six months, usually a year, but I have plenty of blocks of briar that have been sitting around for 10 years. And are are those blocks of briar that have been sitting there for 10 years, are they just sitting there because they're, they're kind of fugly and you don't want to do anything with them or they, they just don't inspire you or you, uh, or are some of them ones you're saving for that special occasion? Uh, some of them, I, I would say all of the above. Uh, so. <laughs> so the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. The answer is yes. Uh, will you weigh the blocks when you get them to see if they lose any more weight over time while you're, while you're sitting there storing them? Well, um, it depends on the, again, this depends on the cutter that you're getting it from, but, uh, um, some cutters, when I receive the briar, it's mostly dry. Um, or, you know, bone dry and others, they come in wet. And what that means is that it hasn't, you know, they've, they've probably let it sit for two or three months, um, before, uh, before sending it to me. And in that case, like it, I have to wait for it to, um, to dry out and acclimate to my climate here in San Diego before I can do anything with it. Um, working with wet briar is no fun. It <laughs> makes a mess. And, um, so if and, and all the dimensions shift as it dries out. So I think maybe some people, some of your listeners are aware that um, uh, briar can crack. Yeah, um, that happens usually when you're working with wet briar uh, or it works with a wet a piece of wet briar that is drying. The dimensions shift and creates instability and the you know, the grain just pulls apart. Um, so you can typically avoid that happening by waiting for it to crack before you make a pipe out of it. <laughs> so you just set it up there and you're just waiting for it to crack, find out where the cracks yeah. are and make the is pipe it, around it. Is it, it. going to crack? If it, if it cracks, uh, then it was going to crack anyway. Uh, it, probably. And it's also how you dry it. So if you dry it in a, a really even way, um, like say for instance, if I had a block of briar sitting in the corner of my workshop, like right pressed against the walls, well, those interior, the, 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 the surfaces that are in contact with or very close to other wall surfaces are naturally going to dry less quickly than the exposed surfaces. And that causes, you know, it's instability in the block of a briar, right? Yeah. Because you have some that's drying out faster than others and that will cause a block of briar to crack. So you have to be real. That's why I put it in the wire baskets so that it dries evenly. And then about once a month, do you go in there and just kind of turn everything? Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. No, it's in because it's in the wire baskets. I mean, I, and they're also I make sure the blocks aren't touching each other. I mean, they're not like the, the walls aren't uh, or the sides aren't completely in contact with one another. There's some air gap there. And because I they're sitting right near the opening, um, the, the exterior opening to my workshop. So I work with the door open. So I'm constantly getting a flow of air through there as well. Yeah, now, I, you, I think you well, live in, you live in San Diego where the weather is 74 every day of the year. Uh, 72. Oh, oh. <laughs> global warming is cooling you down, huh? 
<laughs> well, uh, you know, there's a funny thing about this question um, that or an anecdote that that might be um, interesting to people. So a lot of people know I used to work a lot with my friend Jody Davis uh, when Jody lived in Arizona. He lived only a couple hours away from San Diego when I first moved here. And so I would go spend a lot of time with him. Uh, usually once a month, I would go hang out for uh, a long weekend or a week. And uh, at, at the time, um, I was still learning a lot, and he was an inspiration and a friend. And also, he had sandblasting equipment, which I did not have, so I used his. Um, and Jody had to be really, really careful when he got briar in, especially if it was wet. And the reason was he was curing it in Yuma, Arizona, which is about 150 degrees uh, with 0% humidity, um, <laughs> yeah. like 320 days out of the year or something. It's, it's, it's a hot and dry place. It's an oven, an open-air oven. It is. And if you put wet briar into that environment, the exterior, the surfaces of the briar are drying so quickly that, and the interior can't release the moisture quickly enough to even it all out. And you would get a, a batch of 50 blocks of briar and 40 of them would crack. Um, so Jody would have to individually bag, like in Ziploc bags, each one of his blocks of briar and crack the bag. And every couple of weeks, he would go and uh, see if there was any moisture, you know, in the uh, that had condensed on the sides of the bags. And when that had disappeared, then you can crack the bag a little bit more, move it in <laughs> half, half an inch further open. So uh, that that is the difference between uh, uh, <laughs> curing briar in San Diego or drying briar in San Diego versus uh, an oven. So, so Jody was kind of incubating his blocks. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> well, you know, there's, a, there's another thing that that um, you know I've done before um, with uh, with new batches of briar. I, I had a cutter that I started working with the first time about four years ago, and when I got the briar in, it was dry. Or it, I'm sorry, it was not dry. It was wet, and I was eager to test the smoking characteristics of it. Right. Yep. And so I got this, I got a, the, the least nice piece of the uh, batch of briar and decided to shape a pipe the first day that I got uh, the briar in. So I shaped it and drilled it and it was pretty wet. You can actually see uh, the moisture on the surface of the briar and then you can see it kind of um, dry out as it um, uh, evaporates. So as soon as I shaped and drilled that block, what I did is I took a pencil, I, I weighed it, and I took a pencil and marked the weight on it um, on and put a day next to it. And I set it in my windowsill. And every day I would weigh it. And I figured it was dry when it stopped losing weight. <laughs> and it took about six or seven days for that block of briar to lose all of the moisture weight. <laughs> and well, then I then I... And the only thing you don't want to uh, do uh, is drill the mortise when you are when you do that. And the reason is that your mortise has to be really precise, right? Yeah. But when you are shaping or when you are um, uh, drying wet wood, the wood warps. It changes um, dimensions. And naturally, that very precise hole would no longer be precisely the size that you needed it to be. So I, uh, you know, made sure that I, I didn't drill that hole quite yet. 
And uh, it took about seven days, and then I went and finished up all the drilling and made a pipe and smoked, and it smoked great. <laughs> so, <laughs> And then somebody probably bought it from you out of your mouth. <laughs> I think that did happen, yeah. 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 All right, we're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we'll have more of uh, Rich Esserman's questions for the Ask the Pipe Maker big bonus episode. So stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. A Savinelli pipe is a testament to a long legacy, fortified by well-worn hands and destined to be enjoyed for generations. For over 150 years, Savinelli has been dedicated to sourcing the world's finest briar, committed to pushing the boundaries of pipe design, and devoted to the tradition of Italian pipe making. Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark, and like you, there can only be one Savinelli. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, hanging out with uh, Jeff Grasick. And, you know, Jeff, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a little waterlogged and a little puffy right now, and I could stand to <laughs> lose some water weight. So maybe I'll come sit in your windowsill and for seven days. And That sounds good to me, as long as you let me mark you uh, uh, to, to see if we lose any weight over those days. I'd have, oh, then I could go to the tattoo shop and get the markings permanent, and I could have Jeff Grasick original tattoos. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, yeah, another product line for you. <laughs> Going back to uh, Rich's questions, he says, do you pick the block to make a pipe like Yes Conowitz, or do you tailor the uh, the block as to, or tailor the pipe as to the grain of the block? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah. The answer is yes. I do yeah. both. Okay, next question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Well, I... I think what he's getting at there is like, what, what is the primary driver of the shaping decisions that we make? Right. Is it like inspiration from the block or are you taking something pre, uh, like a pattern to a block of briar? Yeah. Do you, do so, you go take a walk down to the beach and you see a piece of driftwood that floats up and you get inspired <laughs> and then you go back and you've, you've been waiting for years and now all of a sudden the block comes in and it's that shape. Uh, yes. Every time, every time, uh, it takes a long time for me to conceive of a pipe shape. Um, no, what I do is, uh, it, it depends on what, if I have an order that I'm working on or if I'm just kind of feeling a little freewheeling, um, let's say I'm working for a customer and a customer says, I want a five inch long, uh, billiard and I want it to be so-and-so tall, two inches, two and a quarter inches tall. Um, and he wants it to be a, uh, a ring grain. Well, in order to make a ring grain sandblast, I need to have the grain um, oriented in a particular direction. And for a five inch long pipe with the grain oriented that direction, it takes a very specific shape of, uh, not only shape of briar, but also that the grain orientation within that um, block of briar is, uh, will, will make the, the shape that was ordered. And so if I go through a hundred blocks, I might find two that are sufficient for making that particular shape the way this customer wants it. So in that case, that is picking the block to, uh, to, uh, to fit the pattern. Other days, uh, or let's say I have another customer who comes to me and says, hey, I want a uh, six inch long, freehand, smooth, uh, have fun, make whatever shape you want. <laughs> um, and that, that happens. And in those cases, what I do is I will just 
pull a drawer or briar open and start looking and see what pops into my head. I'll look at, uh, you know, maybe look at another hundred blocks of briar and I'll pull out four or five that have, um, you know, great grain and would yield a six inch long pipe. And, uh, that, that has grain that, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a shape that is interesting me in that moment. Um, so yeah, I do both. I do both. There are some pipe makers who work a little more, um, you know, on one side or the other. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I tend to, to work in both areas. And it just kind of depends on what the, on, on what the needs are of the, of the day or the week for you as the yeah. pipe maker based off of your customers. And mm-hmm. it, it all goes I, back to that thing where your family likes to eat. Right. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, there are times when I have, look, I, I'll have, have inspiration from whatever and have a shape in my head. And then I've got to go look through my briar to see if I can, I, again, that in that case, I'm, I'm fitting, I'm choosing the block based on a shape that's in my head. And other times where I just feel like making a pipe and I just, or I'll see a block of briar and go, oh my gosh, I, I, I see a shape in it and I just have to make that right now. Uh, all my other orders be damned. <laughs> I, I really want to make this thing right now. <laughs> and I'll follow that impulse and, and make the shape. Kids, it's macaroni and cheese for a couple of days, but you'll be fine. Trust me. <laughs> Hopefully someone buys it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rich's next question is, uh, how should a blast be? The, the Danes prefer a shallow blast. JT Cook does a super deep blast. Is there a right way? Oh, well, is there a right way? What kind of blast do you prefer, Brian? Well, that's a good question because I've got all different kinds and mm-hmm. there is a, you know, there's a time and place and a moment for each one. Um, I think, I, and, and I very rarely do that. So this is a rare moment in time, but write that down. Um, I think <laughs> that the, uh, that the higher the price of the pipe is, the more craggy blast I want. Um, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, if I like the shape and I know the pipe maker and I know the, and I know the, the reputation, um, you know, yeah, I, it, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter as long as it works for the entire piece, whatever it is, I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is, you know, to answer the, the end of the question, like the, the, the basis of the question, is there a right way? I, no, I don't think there is a right way. Um, I mean, I've seen b- between those two options, a shallow blast versus a deep blast. Uh, there are blasts that I've seen where I'm like, wow, that's really a bad sand blast. But that <laughs> has to do with other things like uh, it's just uh, it's it's uneven um, or it just demonstrates um, a lack of care or uh, experience in sand blasting. That's the wrong way, in my or, opinion. Or you could have had a block of wood that had nothing to blast, and you should have rusticated you, it to put. And you a, made it anyway, right? Yeah, and you 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 know you should have rusticated it to put some sort of formal pattern into it. Right, right, and uh, you know that's that's an example of a uh, of the wrong way to yeah. sandblast, or at least the wrong pipe to sandblast. But between shallow and deep, no, I think it's a personal preference thing, and and really. Um, JT Cook is an outlier. JT Cook was an outlier, and there are a couple others who fall in that category because what they do is a very, very um, specialized kind of um, sandblasting. They are 
um, following the grain with a very small um, uh, nozzle on their sand blaster. And essentially, they're they're only blasting in the deep air in the area that they want it to be deep. They're able to very uh, uh, narrowly focus the stream of blasting media. Yeah. And what most pipe makers do is they are blasting over larger areas, say an inch wide or a half inch wide. And they're allowing the grain pattern to erode in a more natural way, if that makes sense, so that the soft areas blast away more quickly than the hard areas of the grain structure yeah. um, or the growth rings. Um, and Cook is just choosing to highlight that by blasting the soft areas um, for exclusively blasting the soft areas after he creates that initial definition. <laughs> and, um, and blasting them for a very long time. For a very long time, right. Yeah. Um, but I think, you, you know, you look at, uh, to take uh, one of the, the Danes um, as an example, um, Yaskonovich, um, I've seen a couple of his uh, pipes that had really, really incredible deeper blasts. And, you know, he's blasting the same way that he does on everything else. It just so happens that that block of briar um, the soft area is blasted really, really well um, because most of his pipes have a shallower blast. Um, and same for former, same for Tom. Uh, they're shallower than Cook. They're shallower yeah. than like a Dunhill shell, but they're really nicely defined, expertly sandblasted pipes. Is that is this also some in some way how the the American pipe maker influence might have worked backwards to to the European pipe makers where they are maybe now they're in the past you know we did the 20 years thing before in the past 20 years they've gotten the the European pipe makers have gotten a little more interested in doing some more ring grain stuff and maybe pushing their blasts a little further yeah I think that's true you know um, I think really before Cook and before like the um, the fervor for uh, Dunhill uh, shells, my understanding is that most pipe makers and most pipe factories consider their sandblast to be castoffs, right? Yeah. Those were the pipes that couldn't be smooth. Yep. Um, so you were trying every single pipe that you were making, you were aiming to make a smooth because, you know, the smooth was – that's – that's where your money was. Right. Um, that was the way to make an income, and you were just saving an otherwise um, uh, an otherwise unsellable pipe by sandblasting it, and it, you know you sold it at a steep discount as a result. And Cook, I think, was the first person to to really highlight that. And he makes what if he makes a hundred pipes in a year, ninety nine of them are sandblasted. <laughs> he calls the smooths his seconds, and he hates right. doing them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're right. The, you know, there is multiple ways. The only thing that I'll put in there is that I guess the deeper you go in blasting a pipe, the more yeah, the more opportunity you have for something going wrong. So, yeah. you know, you don't want to go so deep that you end up shooting the shank off. Uh, oh, right. Right. Yeah. And that would be, you know, there's when you're sandblasting a pipe, um, at least the way that I approach it and most pipe makers do, uh, you really work hard to have an even sandblast because you want to preserve the shape. Yeah. Uh, you've taken a lot of time to to shape the pipe in a particular way, and if you just carelessly sandblast it so that it's uneven, uh, well, you've just destroyed all of that work, and you know it, it's demonstrating that you don't really care what it looks like. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, and moving on to his final question. Uh, some pipe makers make a thicker stem with a taller and perhaps fatter lip like Costello. Mm-hmm. Others have a thin lip with a more uh, thin lip with a more delicate uh, lip or a thin stem with a more delicate lip. Is one better than the other? Or is one more preferential than the other? Yeah, yeah. Or so, I'll add in there, is one company being, is one being safer than the other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, and I've, I've also seen the other, the, the third option there, which is a, a, a thick mouthpiece with a thick, uh, with a tall lip. Yeah. So let's, let's define some terms here before we uh, go much further. So what he's asking about is like, let, let's call the, the, the raised part at the end of the mouthpiece that you can hook your teeth on. Let's call that, uh, he's calling it the lip. We could call it, I, I typically call it a button. Yes. Um, so that's one thing he's asking, uh, is it better to have that taller or shorter? And the other thing is the area right behind that, right? Where your teeth go. Um, and that affects how it feels in your teeth. Um, the button, it affects how easy it is for it to hang, uh, behind your teeth, right? Because it hooks behind your teeth. And so the question is like, is it better to have it uh, a thinner mouthpiece? So it feels thinner between your teeth, uh, but a, a taller button or lip, or is it better to have a thicker uh, mouthpiece? So it feels thicker between your teeth, but, um, the lip or the, the button is shorter. Um, in my personal opinion, and for my, uh, my opinion about how comfortable it is, I prefer to have a thinner mouthpiece, the, the area behind the button, and a taller, although it doesn't have to be terribly tall, uh, button itself. I want it to be able to hook behind your teeth, um, but I don't, without the, the risk of the pipe falling out, but I don't want to have it um, too tall. Right. And I don't uh, want to have a thick mouthpiece unless it's specifically requested by a customer. And the reason is I fi- find it terribly uncomfortable. Now, you want to have it thick enough back there that if you have someone who chomps away on, a, on their mouthpiece that they won't bite through. It has to be strong enough to uh, withstand that. But, um, you know, you want to have it thin enough to be comfortable. That's how I look at it. Uh, basically, it, as long as it's it's usually what, 375 thousandths. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's Brad Pullman language right there. Now, for many of your listeners may not know, but my friend Brad Pullman, who is a fantastic pipe maker in Oregon, speaks of all measurement in thousandths yeah. <laughs> uh, because he's a former machinist. He is very precise. Yeah. He is very precise. And when we first met, he would ask how many thousands, and I said, I don't know. It's about this thick, holding my fingers <laughs> apart. <laughs> and he's so good that he would say, oh, no, that's about 390 thousands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I like to have it under four, under four millimeters um, uh, behind the, uh, the button on the mouthpiece. And then I actually don't measure the height of the button itself. I do it entirely by how it looks, but they're pretty consistent. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, you're talking, to, you know, that, that four millimeter space behind the button, mm-hmm. it's got, what, a three millimeter hole going through it? So... Uh, well, so this is this is a question that gets into the, the, the construction of the mouthpiece itself. It does have, so like the Danes have a three millimeter hole, typically, a three and a half millimeter uh, that steps down. They use several different drill bits. Yeah. Um, so you have like a stepped um, profile 
on the inside to make it thinner until it gets to the end. Most Americans, and this is another innovation from uh, Jim Cook um, that has been, you know, uh, refined and adapted and changed um, by a lot of the American pipe makers. Um, what we use is instead of the steps, uh, we use tapered drill bits. So they smoothly taper. Um, and then you drill that. It, it, the, it, we use a four millimeter drill bit so that the widest point is four millimeter. I'm sorry. Yes, four millimeters. Uh, and it tapers down to about a millimeter and a half, two millimeters at the end. And you drill that to a, within about a half of an inch of the end of the mouthpiece where the button would be. And then you go in the uh, drill from the other side and make your slot, right? The flat hole that you see at the end of the mouthpiece. Yeah. And that's about a millimeter and a half tall. And then you have to spend a lot of time in there with a little saw and a bunch of needle files to widen it and make that funnel open up um, to and dig into um, the, the tapered drill bit hole. Uh, and what that allows you to do is keep consistent, rel uh, relatively consistent airflow uh, that will be, um, you know, the effective volume of air from four millimeter, uh, from a four millimeter circle uh, going all the way through to the end of the mouthpiece so that there's no constriction and consequently no um, uh, turbulence that will cause moisture to build up. The other thing that lets you do is make your mouthpiece thin behind the button. Um, so you will, uh, you'll have a nice open mouthpiece in terms of its airflow, but also thin enough to be comfortable in your teeth. So you're getting that four millimeter hole smoothly down to a millimeter and a half when it's passing by the four millimeter thick stem. Right. And then it starts to widen out while it's in there. So you get a, so you get a, a almost an equivalent amount of airspace in there. Yeah, and yeah. It, and it just kind of pulls through evenly. Yes, yeah. And so you can, uh, as you're making the mouthpiece, what we'll do, uh, what pipe makers will do is you'll put it to your teeth and you'll test it um, to test the airflow to feel it open up. And if you test it against like a four, just like a solid four millimeter hole rolling, running through the same length of material, it's, it's approximately the same amount of restriction. That's what we're looking for. On, on a much larger pipe, maybe like a Rich Esserman magnum size pipe, would you, mm -hmm. you would, would you make the stem thicker than four millimeters just to keep the proportions looking right and, and deal with the extra weight of the wood? Right. Uh, so I'll make it thicker. Um, I will make it slightly thicker, but not that much more. It might go to, let's say 4.2 or 4.4 uh, millimeters thick, um, but I don't, I still want it to be comfortable in your teeth. Now, part of the reason that I'm doing less than four millimeters for smaller pipes is because there are a lot of people who clench their pipe in their teeth. Yep. And those are the people you're mostly concerned with. Yeah, like uh, me. That you want it to be comfortable. Some people just hold it between their lips. And that, you know, the difference between a four millimeter and a 3.8 millimeter um, uh, area behind the button is not going to feel that much different to them. Um, but uh, I, I'm guessing that uh, Rich Esterman does not clench his, uh, you know, I made him a 15-inch long Levat one time <laughs> that I think weighed about 45 pounds. <laughs> it, it's registered with the state of New York as a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I actually remembered taking a picture of that because I made a, a normal size, uh, like a five and a quarter inch long Levat at the same time for another customer. 
and I sent a picture to both of them uh, <laughs> and uh, saying that uh, the smaller pipe was the tamper for the larger pipe, which is, <laughs> was about right. <laughs> it's the spare tire. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you could almost fit an entire two-ounce two tin of tobacco into that pipe. <laughs> All right, Jeff, we will wrap this up, and you're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force you to do the fast five final questions again just for uh -oh. fun with no preparation. We'll see if it, somebody will go check and see if it's changed since the first time or the last time you did it, but just for uh -oh. fun. Are okay. you ready? Yes. What is your favorite pipe? Uh, my, I have a smooth build, uh, smooth love it that I made for myself about 10 years ago, seven, seven, eight years ago. What is your favorite tobacco? Uh, it is exotique if I'm smoking English and it is red ribbon if I am smoking Virginia's. What is your favorite drink? Uh, right now, uh, a rye old fashioned. When it's time to relax, do you prefer long walks on the beach at sunset or snuggling with a newborn kitten or admiring the leaves and the trees in fall? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? Uh, depends on my mood, but let's say music. And keep in mind, you've got kids, so we know what kind of music that is. Yeah. They like my music. Yeah. Oh, dad's music. Uh, and then finally, a favorite pipe smoking related memory, maybe one of the past couple of years. Ah, favorite pipe smoking memory. Gosh. They're all favorites. This is, this is not, <laughs> this is not a, a fast five. Um, last time I smoked a pipe with you, Brian, of course. Oh, you brown noser. All right. That'll win. <laughs> uh jeff grasick of j allen pipes allen brother pipes thanks for coming on thanks for hanging out with me always a pleasure thanks for having me we'll be back in just a minute have a look in your tobacco cellar what do you see think of what you smoke what you age what you're drawn to in a blend that keeps you wanting more that's your taste and whether you know it or not You've been leading that expedition since you first picked up a pipe just by smoking what you like and liking what you smoke. But the funny thing about taste, it changes and you need a wide selection to accommodate it. We at Smoking Pipes know this and you know it too. So whether you're searching for a tried and true favorite or a singular boutique mixture, we're here to help you navigate the voyage of your evolving tastes. But you're still at the helm. Smoking pipes in faithful service of the hobby. This is Internet Radio. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. And, of course, you can check out all of Jeff's work at uh, J. Allen Pipes and Allen Brothers Pipes. All right, for music, we're going back to the Mutual Admiration Society, better known as my friend and pipe smoker, drummer John Ferraro, along with Jim Cox and Sterling Ball. And uh, this one's just fun, and it's called Checking Up on My Baby.
Mutual Admiration Society. Mutual Admiration Society. The album is available on Apple Music, iTunes, and all that stuff. Buy a copy of it now. It's a lot of fun. I've played three or four songs from it. And uh, I guess I get to see my friend John Ferraro, hopefully, at the uh, West Coast Pipe Show in Vegas. Got a lot to get caught up in the mailbag. And remember, the email address is brian at pipesmagazine.com or travel-related stuff, Brian dot. Levine at mei-travel.com uh, on iTunes in the uh, iTunes ratings and reviews we've had a, a handful of folks that have jumped on board and uh, given five star ratings and reviews and I'm not sure where we left off last time so we'll read four of these right now and I'm pretty sure Robin C.O. said fun and informative. I'm sure I've read this one before, but I like it. Um, as a relative newbie to the pipe world hobby and really not knowing anybody else who partakes, this podcast is a godsend. Great tobacco reviews and interviews. The music is always interesting and enjoyable. And the rants are one of my favorite parts of the show. Keep up the great work, Brian. Thank you very much. Uh, no rant today. Sorry. Uh, then, uh, the wandering dude said the best, uh, most podcasts don't last long on my playlist a year or so. And I grow tired of most of the shows or hosts. However, Brian and pipes magazine radio show have been a weekly enjoyment in my downloads for almost five years. Without a doubt, the pipes magazine radio show is the best and, uh, is the best pipe and tobacco hobbyist podcast on the air. I appreciate that much. And the tolerating me for five years. Wow. Uh, speaking of that, this is now show number 365. So now you can listen to one a day and never run out of one in a whole year. Uh, and then Izzy Perpy says, best pipe podcast. I discovered this podcast about a year, one year ago and have enjoyed it immensely. By far the best podcast around regarding all things pipes, tobacco, and carvers. Thank you, Izzy. <laughs> My neighbor's dog was named Izzy. I used to hang out with her. Uh, and then uh, Kentucky Pipe Pip W says, excellent podcast. Love the content and look forward to each new episode. Keep up the good work. I will, uh, well, I'll keep up the work. Whether it's good or not, that's up to you guys. Anyway, appreciate those iTunes ratings and reviews very much. And then over here on PipesMagazine.com, the newly remodeled, refurbished PipesMagazine.com. So go on there and check it out if you haven't already. Uh, going back to uh, two weeks ago with Blake Kaiser on uh, in, uh, SATX, <laughs> SATX Pipes. Uh, quick one, uh, Blue, uh, Bluegrass Brian said, went ahead and gave a five-star rating to help make up for the idiots. Love the music this week. Julie has always done it for me. Is it just me or does anyone else's skin crawl when the word lifestyle is applied to pipe smoking? Also, there needs to be more visible satanic pipe smokers. <laughs> well, you got that the week after. Uh, and also, uh, let's see. Writing Rav says, hi, Brian. Another great show. Blake was a great conversationalist, which makes for a great interview. I've been looking at his website for a while now, and he's got some very nice pipes in the restored section. Uh, let alone in the new section. Just one quibble. Uh, CND still produces the Hebraica series, and they are some wonderful tobaccos, if I have to say so myself. Cheers, Ira. Yeah, maybe I ought to do a review of them. I haven't. I don't think I've actually smoked them. Uh, and then Casey Ghost says, "Good show, good pipe part segment. Nice talk you had with Blake. I was somewhat amused with his answer about there being no gospel music people he could talk to during his time in Nashville." 
uh, since they have him by the thousands there, I can't imagine where he was looking. Maybe it was pipe related. Uh, the only thing I can think of, he was talking to his friends. Uh, the only thing I can think of, he was talking to his friends. And then Casey Ghost goes on to say, man, Julie Andrews could sing. I'd rather listen to her read a milk carton than any of today's performer singers. <laughs> uh, they still have stuff on milk cartons? <laughs> Don't know. Uh, Dillagas says, hi, Brian. In a world gone crazy, I'm glad to hear that a nice man like Blake can still supplement his income with some pipe cleaning and repair and selling artisan pipes from lesser known craftsmen at a reasonable price. Some things still right in the world. Uh, thank you for the tips about preventing ghosting. I don't usually wipe out the bowl as I've been afraid to damage the cake, but I've started to do this now and it works well. One of the advantages of having several pipes is that I can dedicate a couple to Virginia's, a few to Vapors, uh, one or two to English blends, and a nice pipe for one for the one aromatic that I smoke on occasion. I found it useful to smoke a new tobacco that I'm trying for the first time in a corn cob. And, of course, you should only get a Missouri Meerschaum corn cob. Uh, that's me. Uh, that way I don't take a chance of ghosting one of my favorites for a tobacco that might not make it into my rotation. I agree I agree with Casey Ghost. Julie Andrews is terrific. Cheers. Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll just jump in there and highly suggest that everybody smoke a brand-new tobacco in a Missouri Meerschaum or in a clay pipe. That way you're not worried about it at all. Um, unless, of course, it's just a Virginia Perique, in which case all my pipes taste like Virginia Perique's. And then going forward to last week's show with uh, Chris, uh, apparently there was a little bit of an issue with the new website and everything, uh, but it's up and running. And then uh, Casey Ghost says, very enjoyable show. There's no doubt that Chris has a very Talbert-esque flair to his pipes. Last week's music was very good, but this week's was rather weak. Queen can be very good when they keep their instruments under control. Unfortunately, tribute bands can rarely do that. I'm trying to figure out how a small country population-wise like Norway can have enough people to run an airline. <laughs> well, they've only got a few planes. That makes it easy for them. And I do like their airline. Uh, and then Dillagas says, uh, Hi, Brian. Great show. I always enjoy an English perspective on the hobby. Chris was an interesting guest. Thank you for your discussion of army mounts and pipe parts. My Petersons with army mounts are my favorite pipes to take traveling when I'm out and about and need to smoke three to four bowls from the same pipe before I can get back into my hotel room. Uh, it is great to be able to break them, uh, break them down right after smoking, even while they are hot. Uh, do a good cleaning and then carry them easily in my shirt pocket. I save my fancy briars for smoking at home. Cheers. <laughs> that must be the straight grains. Um, anyway, uh, and then Old Man Smoking said, just listen to episode 349, a little behind, but not to worry. Uh, that bit about lighters, why no mention about the best of them all, the Zippo. Uh, kind regards, Old Man Smoking. Yeah, I kind of skipped over the Zippo. Uh, the, however, the Zippo's a little bit controversial with its uh, with the Zippo fluid, and uh, I guess, yeah, I don't really pick up on the flavor. I do get the smell of it, and it reminds me of my great-grandfather. But at the same time, I think the biggest problem for me with Zippos is having to refill them every three or four days because the fluid just kind of evaporates, or, you know, then you got to worry about overfilling them. 
Anyway, if you have any comments or questions, you can post them right there on the Pipes Magazine radio show page. Uh, remember, coming up October 5th is when you will see me at the Conclave of Richmond Pipe Show at the Sutliff Tobacco Factory. Uh, per Jensen will be there. Jeremy Reeves will be there. Russ Wallette will be there. Plus, all the folks from Sutliff will be up and open and running the factory for you. And, uh, yeah, and you'll be able to sit down with me and maybe record something for the future show. So there you go. Hope to see a lot of you there. All right. Rave time coming up next. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. You know what, I'm going to take this time and I'm going to talk to you about uh, AT&T and their uh, international wireless plan because I just, I, I'm really happy with it. That's all I can say. Uh, AT&T, whenever you're overseas, it's just $10 a day for unlimited talk, text, and data. It's not a low-speed data. It's not, uh, you know, it's no, it's not throttled back or you're not piggybacking. You get whatever network happens to be strongest in the area and it's 10 bucks a day you can call home like normal no issues whatsoever you can text back and forth with anybody you've got you can use the data portion in fact on this last trip instead of getting a map of the town we just used google maps and found stuff that was right around the corner that we would have never noticed because it wasn't on a tourist map well we found it on google maps and walked over there to it uh you can you know post the, you Anyway, it's just super easy. It's super reliable. And in fact, in some cases, it seems like, depending on where you are, it may be faster than using your own home network. But for $10 a day for a 24-hour period, you get unlimited talk, text, and data. And again, you know, we're just saving a ton of time wandering around foreign countries and we're using Google Maps for it or we're researching maybe a restaurant. So instead of walking over to the restaurant and looking at the menu, you can pull it up on the old interweb and there you go. You can see if the restaurant's in your price range, see what the menu is that they have to offer. And you can also use Google Translate, which I've used a lot and it's right there in handy and it makes it a whole lot easier on you and a whole lot faster for your travels. So don't know what other wireless carriers are doing lately because it's been a couple of years since I've been with AT&T, but all I can say is really happy with them, and for 10 bucks a day, it's one of the greatest things that you can do while you travel. All right, there we go. Um, comments or questions, again, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. Keep sharing the Pipes Magazine radio show out to all your pipe-smoking friends 
share it on Facebook in your Facebook groups, share it on Instagram and all the other places. I don't know. Do whatever. Anyway, uh, let's keep the show growing. There we go. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to Jeff for joining me. And until next time. the clouds when we're together just sing a song and think about sunny weather happy trails to the till we meet